Well, good morning again. It's now time to turn to God's holy and abiding word. If you have a copy of God's word with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 12? Matthew chapter 12. Last week, our passage ended with Jesus giving the wide open call of the gospel to needy sinners like you and me. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And this week, our passage consists of people who are coming to Jesus, not to find rest, but to reimpose a heavy yoke upon God's people. The Pharisees in this passage are going to argue with Jesus about what is lawful to do on the Sabbath day. This is actually the first instance we have of the Pharisees arguing with Jesus about the law in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember in Matthew 9, they argued with him about whether he had the authority to forgive sins. And then they argued with him about whether he should be eating with tax collectors and sinners later in the chapter. But now they're picking a fight about the proper interpretation of God's law. And this shouldn't surprise us. Remember, this is what the entire Sermon on the Mount was about. Jesus started by correcting the critique that people had set against him. That he had come to abolish the law of God. And then he went on to say that he had actually come to fulfill it. To teach it rightly and to correct the false righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So here, instead of seeing that in Jesus' teaching, we see that false righteousness of the Pharisees in confrontation and argument. They are trying to accuse Jesus and say that he is abolishing God's law, but Jesus uses the opportunity to expose their horrible misunderstanding of God's law. The Pharisees use the law of God as a club to beat people down, and a pedestal to lift themselves up. Jesus shows that the law of God is a reflection of the character of God, who desires mercy and longs to relieve heavy-laden sinners. The Pharisees spend their time condemning the guiltless, but Jesus is careful not to break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. That's what we're going to see today in this passage. But before we go to God's word, let's ask for his help in understanding it. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and come to Jesus. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, 
and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. As we look through this passage today, we're going to see four things. First, we're going to look at the question that the Pharisees are asking. What is lawful to do on the Sabbath? And try to understand why it is that they're asking that. Then we're going to see Jesus' response, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then his second response, when he gives a true understanding of God's law. And then finally, we'll see what Matthew quotes from Isaiah about Jesus being God's chosen servant. But the passage begins with a short statement that Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field. His disciples were hungry, and so they began to pluck heads of grain and eat them. All of this seems pretty boring to put into Scripture, except for the key statement in verse 1, that all of this took place on the Sabbath. It was that that led the Pharisees in verse 2 to say to Jesus, Look! Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. That's the driver for this whole passage. That phrase, what is lawful to do or what is not lawful to do, shows up four times in this passage. So they're questioning Jesus about the law. Specifically, they're accusing his disciples and then him of breaking the Sabbath. So the question we need to ask if we're going to understand what is happening here is what is the Sabbath? And why do the Pharisees care so much about it? If you remember back, the Sabbath was given to Israel after God saved them out of slavery in Egypt. We hear first about it 
in Exodus 16, but then God officially gives it in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments. This is what the fourth commandment says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Then God gives a reason for the commandment. He says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In Deuteronomy, Moses is giving a retelling of the law to Israel after they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And God gives another reason in that telling of the Ten Commandments for the Sabbath command. He ends the command with the statement that even their servants should rest like they do. And then he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath was a day of rest. For Israel, it was the seventh day of the week, what we call Saturday. And they were commanded to rest from their labors on that day. Two reasons are given for this. That this is what the Lord did in creation. He worked six days and then rested on the seventh. And the second reason is that they aren't slaves anymore. Working tirelessly for a harsh taskmaster. The Lord has given them freedom. And so he has given them rest from their labors. And one thing I want you to see is the connection between this argument about the Sabbath and what Jesus just finished saying at the end of Matthew 11. What did Jesus promise to all who came to him? Rest. Rest from our labors and burdens. And immediately, Matthew turns to an argument about what kind of work could be done on the day of rest. But another important question is, why do the Pharisees care so much? Why are they all bent out of shape about whether the disciples are working on the Sabbath? One of the reasons is that God cares a lot about the Sabbath. He makes it clear in Exodus that if someone broke the Sabbath, they should be put to death. But the seriousness or holiness of the Sabbath led to more than just taking it seriously by the scribes and the Pharisees. The Old Testament itself provided a few examples of what it looked like to follow or break the Sabbath. But by the time Jesus came to earth, the scribes and Pharisees had developed an elaborate system of rules clarifying what did and did not count as work on the Sabbath. The Mishnah, which is a book of teaching from the Jewish rabbis, had 39 categories that constituted that kind of work. Everything from the distance you were allowed to walk to how many letters you were allowed to write. In an effort to protect God's law, they decided to fix the ambiguity that existed in the law. Oh, God forgot to define what work is. We'll go ahead and do that for him. And for everyone else around us. That way, they would know for sure if someone around them was 
or was not violating the Sabbath. When the Pharisees confront Jesus about whether he and his disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, they aren't talking about the words of Scripture. They're talking about the teaching of the rabbinic tradition, their own agreed-upon definition of work. The Old Testament specified that plowing and harvesting were not allowed on the Sabbath. But the rabbinic tradition was more specific and said that sifting the kernel from the husk counted as harvesting. And so it was not lawful to do that on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are looking at Jesus' disciples, plucking heads of grain to eat, consulting their chart of unlawful activities, and pronouncing God's condemnation on Jesus' disciples. Before we move on to see Jesus' response to this, his answer to their question, we need to examine our own lives. In some ways, what the Pharisees are doing is not all that strange. They're reading God's law and trying to figure out how to apply it. But notice how easy that switch is. From working to apply the law in your own life, to then considering your own application of the law as equivalent to God's law itself. You may read that parents should raise their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. After some discussion with your spouse and looking around at the options, you decide homeschooling your kids is the best way for you to obey that command. Sounds fine so far. But a few years down the line, you can't believe how many Christians you know that are just disregarding God's command to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Why? Because they're sending their kids to private or public school. You have made your own application of God's law equivalent to God's law itself. We do this with how many drinks it takes to get drunk, with whether a Christian should have a social media account, or how much money they ought to spend on their house or on vacations. Don't get me wrong. All of these things are worth discussing together as believers and thinking through wisdom on how to apply God's law. This isn't sectoring us apart from conversation with others. But like the Pharisees, we very quickly treat our own application of God's law like it is God's law itself. So how does Jesus respond to them? Jesus responds to their question, as Weston said a few weeks ago, with two more questions. Both examples from Scripture that help interpret the Sabbath law. Then in verses 6 through 8, he makes three statements. Two of them are about who he is, and one of them is about why the Pharisees should have known how to understand God's law correctly. I'd like us to read those verses again so that we can clearly see Jesus' response. Let's look at verses 3 through 8 together. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. 
And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Remember, Jesus is talking about himself when he says the Son of Man. In Matthew, it's his favorite title for himself. He says that he is Lord or King or Master of the Sabbath. What is Jesus claiming? Some people will say that Jesus is claiming that the Sabbath is his and he can do what he wants with it. If I say it's lawful, then it's lawful. But we need to remember what Jesus has already said about his relationship to the Old Testament law. Remember in Matthew 5, he says that he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then do you remember how particular he gets about that? Starting in verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has already established that he is not someone who is saying, just chill out. These things are not that big of a deal. No, no one takes the law of God as seriously as Jesus. The follow-up to this statement in the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus showing just how far we ought to take the law. It's not just that you can't murder. God tells you that you shouldn't even hate your brother. It's not just that you can't commit adultery. God tells you that you shouldn't even lust after someone in your heart. Jesus is not discarding God's law by saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath. What is he saying? He's saying that if anyone understands the Sabbath, he does. The Pharisees are arguing about the right understanding of the law of God with the God who created the law in the first place. Jesus is telling them that he has a right to understand the law because it is his. And so he explains it to them. He quotes two Old Testament examples, David eating the bread of the presence in 1 Samuel 21 and the ongoing activity of the priests in the temple on the Sabbath. Notice Jesus uses other places in Scripture, not his own imported definitions, to show them the true way to know what is lawful on the Sabbath. And instead of looking at those examples in detail right now, I want us to turn to verse 7, which is the other statement Jesus makes in summary. Verse 7 says, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Remember, this is now the second time that Jesus has quoted this verse to the Pharisees. In Matthew 9, when they complained about him eating with tax collectors and sinners, he said to them, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is checking to see if the Pharisees did their homework. The quote comes from Hosea 6.6. In the context of Hosea, God is calling Israel out for obeying his commands about sacrifices, but neglecting the heart of the law. To know and love God himself and to live lives of justice and mercy 
toward the people around you. That is the heart of the law. So Hosea in Hosea 6, 4 through 6 says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Those are nicknames for Israel. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus is giving them and us the key to understanding God's law. And the key here is exactly the key throughout the New Testament. The summary that Jesus gives of the law later in Matthew 22 is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. The Apostle Paul says that love is that the law rather is summed up in one word, love. Notice, this doesn't mean that Jesus or God don't care about the law. Jesus spent the entire Sermon on the Mount, again, teaching us the depth and the extent of the law for our lives. It's not that God doesn't care about sacrifices. He instituted them. It's not that he doesn't care about rest on the Sabbath. It was his idea, his gift to Israel. What he is correcting in both Hosea and in this passage is the observance of the law in outward things as a mask to hide the emptiness of biblical love for God and our neighbor. Let me say that again. What he is confronting is when we observe the law outwardly as a way to mask or hide the fact that we do not have the motive of love for God and for our neighbor. The Pharisees are using God's law as a decoy to hide their empty hearts. Jesus shows that in the first section by using the example of David starving and needing bread and the priests leading worship on the Sabbath. According to the logic of the Pharisees, David should have gone hungry and we should abstain from worshiping God on Sundays. That dichotomy between love and outward obedience is made even more clear in the next instance. So let's read verses 9 through 14 again to see how Jesus makes this clear. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep... If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. There's a man in the synagogue with a withered hand or a paralyzed arm. The Pharisees are more concerned about Jesus violating their own made-up application of the Sabbath than they are about the suffering and potential healing of this man. Jesus exposes this by showing that they care more about their sheep than they do about this man. So he healed him. And verse 14 tells us the Pharisees' reaction. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
the Pharisees' real concern, their real heart, is exposed in this last statement. They don't care about the Sabbath or how God should be worshipped. Their response to Jesus' seeming breaking of the law is to conspire to murder him. That commandment is not hard to understand and apply. Before we move to verses 15 to 21, I want us to see two things that we need to learn from this passage. First, importantly, Jesus did not do what was unlawful on the Sabbath. That was the Pharisees' opening question, and it would be a travesty to get to the end of this and not realize the blatant answer to the question that we see. We can get a little confused because it seems like Jesus is conceding the point in that first paragraph. He says that David ate the bread, which he says it was not lawful for him to eat. And then he says that the priests, by their labors, profane the Sabbath. But notice what he says immediately afterward, that those priests are guiltless. His statement in verse 7 was that if the Pharisees understood what Hosea said, they would not have condemned the guiltless. Someone who is guiltless has not violated the law. And then in verse 12, Jesus summarizes everything he's done in an answer to their question. So it is lawful, he says, to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus is not saying, yeah, we broke the Sabbath, but it's no big deal. Or he's not saying, loving God is more important than obeying God's law. No, he is correcting their misapplication of God's law. And he's giving them the key to know whether they are misapplying God's law. If you think what you're doing is a good application of God's law, and you are blatantly violating the intent of the whole law, then you are wrong in your application. This is what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees are bad interpreters of the law because they fixate on some details and won't pay attention to the intent of the whole. He told us that all the way back in Matthew 5, and now he's telling us that again. The second thing that we need to learn from this passage is that Jesus is giving us his own correct interpretation of God's law. It's clear that this incident is less about the Sabbath in particular and more about how we should approach God's law. And Jesus' own interpretive key is that love and mercy ought to be our motivation in everything we do. Love for God and love for our neighbor. We've already seen that this is Jesus' own motivation for everything he does. He is gentle and lowly in heart. He has compassion on the crowds because they are harassed and helpless. This is not licensed to come up with our own definition of love and apply it as we see fit. But rather, this is an, an excuse me, this is license to see what God has revealed love to be in his word and apply that to his law. Life-giving love, holy love, love that turns us away from sin and turns us to Jesus. When we see that, that is our motivation in every action toward God and toward those around us. So the question for us is, are you paying attention to your heart in your daily living? Or are you just making sure that you are doing the right thing? Is the way you treat your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, 
motivated by love? Are your daily devotions, your prayers, your obedience motivated by love for God and a desire to know Him more? That is the intent of all of God's law. In this last section, we see that Jesus is God's chosen servant. Matthew moves on from the confrontation with the Pharisees and gives another general statement about Jesus' actions and his healings. But then he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and he uses that key word, fulfill, that we haven't seen in a while. If you remember, we saw that a lot at the beginning of Matthew. And when he uses that word, he is connecting back to the Old Testament and the expectations and the longing for the Messiah to come. Here, he says that Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy about the servant of the Lord. Remember, Isaiah throughout has four songs about God's chosen servant, about the Messiah, the anointed one, what he will do and what he will be like. This quotation is from the first of those songs in Isaiah 42. Let's read these verses and see what it is that Jesus fulfills. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. If you remember back on the last two chapters that we've been in, beginning with the disciples of John the Baptist, Jesus has received a lot of skepticism about whether he is really the Messiah. He doesn't seem to be fitting into the expectations that a lot of people had for what the Messiah would do and be like. We're actually going to see that keep going throughout the rest of Matthew 12 in the coming weeks. The Pharisees are going to say that Jesus' power comes from a demonic spirit. They demand signs for him to prove that he is truly the Messiah. And that's on top of this not-so-subtle claim that Jesus doesn't really uphold God's law. In the midst of all that opposition, all that skepticism, Matthew makes clear that there is one person who knows exactly who Jesus is. And that person is God the Father. Despite the skepticism of everyone else, the Father has declared that Jesus is his chosen servant and his beloved with whom he is well pleased. Jesus has the pleasure and approval of his Father because he is doing exactly what the Messiah was intended to do. The first point Isaiah makes is that Jesus has the Holy Spirit of God upon him. We saw this in his baptism in Matthew 3. The Father sent His Spirit upon Jesus to empower Him for His mission in this world. This is a precursor to what we'll see next week when the Pharisees say that Jesus' power, His miracles, His healings come from a demon. The second point is this note of justice. Realize this is what the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of. They say He is doing and promoting unlawful actions. But Jesus, more than anyone else, is proclaiming true justice and righteousness. And you see at the end of verse 20 that one day he won't just proclaim those things, but he will bring justice to victory. 
when his kingdom comes in full. No more sin, no more death, and no more sorrow. But the third point Isaiah makes is that God's chosen servant won't be combative or argumentative. No, instead, verse 20 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. A bruised reed and a smoldering wick were pictures of people who had almost no strength. They were at the end of their rope, just barely hanging on. Jesus is the kind of Messiah who is gentle and compassionate with those kinds of people. Look at the contrast this has with the Pharisees and what we just read. Their anger ratchets up throughout the story. They don't seem to care at all about the fact that Jesus' disciples are hungry. Then they use a crippled man as an opportunity to catch Jesus in a trap of maybe wanting to heal him. Then when he does, they decide that they are going to kill Jesus. Jesus is the one who spends the whole passage motivated by mercy and love and compassion. And that's why the final line of the quotation from Isaiah can say what it says, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Remember, the Gentiles were the unclean, the pagans, the ones who didn't know God or live the right way. Those are the kinds of people who find hope in Jesus. And this is where I want us to end today. It's so easy for us to put ourselves in the midst of this debate when we read this passage. We're working through the details of who's right and who's wrong, and that's fine. We need to pay attention to the truth that Jesus is proclaiming. But we need to be clear about who we are in this story. We are the disciples, hungry and unsure of if we can eat. We are the man with the withered hand, hearing that healing might not come today. We are the ones weary and burdened with sin and suffering. And Jesus is the Messiah who will not break us bruised reeds or quench us who are faintly burning wicks. He has come to save us from our sins. He has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. And so we hear and heed his call again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's go to Jesus in prayer now. Jesus, we thank you that you are compassionate towards sinners. Otherwise, we would have no hope. We thank you that you are merciful to those who are lawbreakers, who need to be forgiven of our guiltiness. We thank you that you have taken that upon yourself on the cross. And so we pray, Lord, that we would not cling to our sin and cling to our self-sufficiency, but that we would come to you and find the rest that only you can give. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.